9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf coming to you from somewhere in the New York metropolitan area in Washington, D.C. We have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, David Sanger of the New York Times, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and in far off Merry old London, England. We have Corey <laughs> Shockey uh, enjoying um, uh, life in a more civilized, stabilized country. Um, uh, that's hilarious, David. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, well, you know, it, everything's relative, I guess. Um, let me start uh, this episode going back a couple of days. Ed had a really, really good column about the the coming nature of political debate in the United States. Uh, and Ed, I was just wondering if you could share the thesis a bit. Uh, well, th- thank you for mentioning my column, uh, David. It's um, about the, the rise of um, economic radicalism uh, on, the, on, the, on the left of American politics, on the, on the left of the Democratic Party. And I guess the sort of passing of the age of Obama, Clinton, incrementalism. And one of the reasons why, you know, I would take issue with your description of Corey being in a, a merrier, more stable place, which I know was ironic. Um, but to take you literally, one of the reasons I would uh, uh, um, take dispute with it is because this is mostly healthy, non, non-Chavez um, left-wing ferment um, on the Democratic left. There are some good ideas being bandied around, uh, uh, such as sort of Teddy Rooseveltian, Brandeisian, um, monopoly breaking, big is bad, competition is good. There are some more questionable um, notions, uh, such as universal basic income, which I think is just unaffordable and politically suicidal. Um, but generally speaking, this is not Corbynism. This is a very healthy um, uh, and a very um, uh, lively debate going on as the Democratic primary gets underway that signals, I think, a complete shift of gravity from the incrementalist uh, sort of Wall Street wing of the Democratic Party that's been in command for a generation or so um, to a far more radical but a very American form of left-wingism. Um, and I think it's a very, very healthy sign. It's also uh, you know, worth stating that um, that ever since I've been around, and the same applies to the rest of you, the real ideas factory and the money going into ideas has been on the conservative right um, in terms of think tank building, in terms of the sort of long-term um, project of, of um, uh, winning one state house after the other to you know, gerrymander or suppress the vote or whatever the um, um, Koch brothers want, um, want done. Um, and for the first time I can remember, the actual sort of center of ferment is now on the left. And I consider that to be a very good thing. Well, I think it's a good thing as far as we see it right now. And, and you know, I think part of this is associated with the fact that you have the beginnings, the stirrings of a presidential campaign where Elizabeth Warren has announced exploratory committee 
um, and uh, two or three other uh, uh, candidates have announced uh, uh, their their campaigns, and twenty to thirty others may be in the wings, and so you've got these new ideas and you've got this new infusion of blood into the Congress. Um, but I think it's kind of worthwhile to talk about, you know, what are the emerging ideas that are going to change or reshape the debate um, in the United States, whether they have to do with economics or international economics or national security policy. And I, I just want to sort of go around to the group on these things. But Corey, I want to start with you because Ed made the assertion that, you know, the new ideas traditionally started or recently have started with the, the conservative right. Obviously, there's been real tension within the, the Republican Party uh, since Trump. Uh, and I'm wondering, do you see the possibility for new ideas emerging from a divided Republican Party as some people are trying to position themselves as being different from the president? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I agree with Ed that the the ideas industry ebbs and flows. That's the genius of a competitive political system that you try and identify problems and solve problems. And if you're not winning elections, you try and come up with novel ways that people haven't thought of before. And and when it succeeds, you get elected. And in a weird, crass, horrible way, that's also true of Donald Trump, um, right? He got elected because people wanted to shout a barbaric yawp over the roofs of elites in America. And now what I think we see is conservatives turning keys in the lock, trying to figure out what, what works. So Mike Pence thinks uh, being an apologist for the president will work. Uh, John Kasich believes the record he has created for jobs and dealing with problems like the opioid crisis in the state of Ohio is going to work. Um, but of course, there's a lot more intellectual ferment on the Democratic side, in part because it's going to be the first time in quite some time that you haven't had a Clinton or an Obama on the ticket for for Democrats, and they have this magnificent bench of young, creative people, whereas I think uh, while we on the right also have some sparkly young talents, Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, potentially Ben Sass from Nebraska, I think there's a lot more interest and ferment on the Democratic side because you have a new generation of of young politicians who are also experimenting with different ways of engaging the American public, which Trump succeeded at and Dems are now succeeding at. But also you have the old guard like Nancy Pelosi, who are reminding us of tried and tested time-honored solutions like refusing to let a petulant president set the terms of debate. And and so, yeah, I do think there's a lot more interesting experimentation going on on the Democratic side right now. Um, oh, I'm sorry. There's one, there's one other point I should have made, which is that some of the darlings of, of policy ideas on the conservative side, uh, like Paul Ryan, 
completely destroyed their legitimacy and their legacy by their cravenness of complicity with President Trump. David, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I, Corey, uh, Corey is precisely right, uh, uh, of course. But the energy that is being shown, um, I think- That's a phrase, the- by the way, that it gets none of the excitement of, David, you're exactly right, because people say that <laughs> all the time about it. People assume that Corey is going to be right, where when it's you or me, David, it's actually a news event. <laughs> I know it is kind of I curtsy my I, thanks, gentlemen. I curtsy my thanks. It's like there's two of us, and it's still unlikely. Right? That's right. Uh, d- double the chances and still a far smaller percentage chance that Corey sitting alone in a room not even talking to us would be right. So, uh, uh, thank you. It makes me feel like Alexander Gallatin. That's it. Uh, <laughs> boy, I've nice, nice. got to set up a competition among Deep State Radio um, listeners for, you know, the first to respond correctly about who Alexander Gallatin was. And I don't know, there ought to be like one of the new mugs for them or something. Um, so um, and, and they're great rivers named after him. Uh, so on the left, you are beginning to see a fair bit of policy confusion on a few issues. We'll set aside the domestic issues, the tax rates and and so forth. But instead, what you're seeing it is in our involvement in um, Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan. So a few years ago, it was sort of a working statement uh, among many Democrats and certainly those on the left side of the party that we should be no place near these conflicts, that we have no business trying to change societies, that even if we did have business doing it, we're really bad at it, and therefore we should get out. And so it's been a little bit amusing, as the president has in the most clunky, the most undiplomatic, and the most uh, uh, damaging ways, I think, announced our withdrawal from Syria, only 2,000 troops there anyway, that you're hearing calls from some of these same people about staying. And they haven't sort of reconciled these two issues. Now, the way to do it, of course, is to say you want to get out, but you want to get out in the right way. But that's been lost in this noise. And I think this is sort of the the big fight that you're going to see happen within the Democratic Party between um, those who want to turn out candidates on big policy issues that they're still debating out within the party, and those who just want to get a moderate candidate who they believe can beat President Trump and uh, run that person, regardless of what the policy is, just on the basis that we need an end to the soap opera. Um, that's very good. Now, by the way, I, I want to go back and correct myself, because the Gallatin I'm thinking of is Albert Gallatin whose statue is by the Treasury Department. Um, you are accurate. It was Albert Gallatin I was speaking of, not I. You were thinking Albert. of Hamilton. You're getting your other Treasury Secretary confused. I was indeed. I saw Hamilton this last week here in London, and I am still humming the song about Thomas Jefferson coming home. So does that mean that while I said before that you were precisely right, in fact, you were precisely wrong? <laughs> My point was right. The the 
given name of my preferred illustration was mistaken. And I thank you, gentlemen, for keeping me honest. Well, well we've, I, I, we've only... We've only kept you honest because one of the great fly fishing rivers of America is named for the guy, and it's only because he financed the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I actually think, Corey, as usual, your grasp of American history um, is, is, is getting the better of you because whereas Alexander Hamilton was Treasury Secretary for six years, Albert Gallatin, the fourth Treasury Secretary, was actually Secretary for 13 years um, and played, a, a, in many ways, important <laughs> I thank you for covering my error, David. That was very chivalrous of you. Yeah, and by the, by the way, I do want to say that for those of you who haven't listened to General Mark Hurtling on our National Security Magazine, uh, you should. Uh, not just because of the contents of the discussion, but because after the contents of the discussion, he told me that he was able to wrap the entire score of Hamilton, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, which I thought was very impressive um, and a sign that his he has priorities extremely uh, straight. So Mark Hurtling was the J7 when I was the director for defense strategy on the NSC. And I can assure you that nobody wants the audio of him rapping the entirety of Hamilton. <laughs> well, he's a good guy, right? You'd have to admit he was a good guy. And, and uh, I agree, he's a first-rate guy. And he, and and his heart and his heart is in the, in the right place um, here on his sleeve. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Rosa, we've we've discussed in the past your roots in. Um, the left-wing American movements of the 20th century. Um, and I was wondering, as you listen to what Ed is talking about, if you see anything new there, or if it is all as some Republican critics are suggesting, just recycled socialism. <laughs> Um, no, I think we're seeing, we're, I think we're seeing all kinds of interesting stuff. And, and you know, as Ed said, some of it's going to be wrong. You know, some of it's going to be unworkable, unfeasible, you know, not well thought through, unaffordable. But but I I actually think that the people like um, uh, the, the, some of the Democrats who have just been elected, um, including um, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, these are not your, your grandpa's socialists. Um, and in fact, my grandpa was, in fact, a, a for a time, at least in his career, was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. Um, um, you know, and this, this ain't that, uh, and this is not, this is not even what most people would think of as socialism, you know, going back 40, 50 years. Um, you know, this is something that is much, it is much closer to what Europeans, uh, call social, social democracy, um, or, you know, the term that more Americans are using is democratic socialism. Um, and uh, no, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I, 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 overall, I think it's fantastic, even though, I too think some of it's some of it's wacky and unrealistic, but uh, I've said this before. This to me is the the single big silver lining uh, of the otherwise you know all fiasco experiment with Donald Trump um, is that it has sort of shaken a lot of stuff loose. Um, you know, it has it has it has led us it has forced us as Americans to to turn over various rocks and discover how much nasty stuff was hiding under those rocks the whole time. 
you know, e.g. white supremacist stuff, anti-Semitism, all kinds of really horrifically awful things. Um, and I think that in the wrong run, that's good too, actually. I'd rather, you know, have that stuff be out in the open where we can talk about it and, and fight it. Um, but I also think it's just, it's shaken up both political parties. It's shaken up all the old assumptions about what Democrats stand for, what Republicans stand for. And thank God for that. You know, that's the one thing that make, gives me some degree of hope for the for the future. Um, well, I, I think one should have hope for the future. Ed, you know, um, I think one of the things that's quite interesting um, in, in the context of your article, in the context of this discussion, is that our, the headlines every day are about Donald Trump. Donald Trump's crimes, Donald Trump's outrages, Donald Trump's tweets, Donald Trump's hair, Donald, well, you know, all of this. Um, but Donald Trump has not really come to his job with a lot of ideas. And the Democratic Party almost seems unanimous among all these candidates that while they're running to offer an alternative to Trump, they're not going to run against him or his ideas. Um, and I think the same is is may well be true with uh, the Republicans that Corey started to mention, some of whom I challenge him. And I think one of the interesting things is that Trump may trigger a political sea change in the United States that is going to be idea-focused because nobody sees any point going directly at him and making it personality-focused. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, maybe that's a cause for some for some optimism as well. Yeah, you know, I think that is. I mean, if 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 you want a sort of single instance um, that encapsulates why why the Democrats, for for good or ill, are are being radicalized, look at Obamacare, um, and look at the fact that um, Bernie Sanders, you know, in 2016, was a fairly lone, eccentric, and surprisingly successful voice challenging Hillary Clinton for the nomination in talking about universal health care. Um, uh, and what's happened since then, which is that Obama, uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, the single most important um, domestic reform that the Democrats have accomplished in the 21st century has been semi-dismantled um, since, since that Bernie Sanders campaign. And who knows, combination of the courts and Trump um, could well lead to um, the dismantling of the rest of it in the next two years. And that was a reform that was based quite deliberately, tactically, on conservative ideas of what healthcare reform should look like, uh, on an original Heritage Foundation plan that was taken up by Mitt Romney when governor of Massachusetts and turned into Romney Care. And Obama, for pragmatic reasons, said, let's choose a conservative um, idea of what healthcare reform should look like. And it is being destroyed by conservatives. Um, so what is the point of compromising uh, under those conditions? So I, I can understand why the Democratic Party is being radicalized. That said, with the political system that America has, uh, you know, it is very, very hard to get things done unless you have Californian style supermajorities. And I don't see that happening. There's going to have to be a pragmatic wing post-Trump of the Republican Party um, that, that that's able to do deals and understand that the direction has changed. And I think the direction is changing. And I think that, you know, the more 2019 goes on, the more profound we're, we're going to to see this. Some people talking about a new progressive era. I think that's premature. Uh, it's also it's also a very sort of um, 
Panglossian view of the world right now because the world is going in the wrong direction, but it's not inconceivable. Well, let me play a little thought experiment here. And let me start with you, Corey, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot. Um, but this has been a, a discussion about the economic side, but essentially the core economic ideas that we've been dealing with have been around for decades. Uh, and one of the things that makes this movement on the progressive side uh, kind of interesting is that it's like perhaps we're going to move on to something new. But on the national security and foreign policy side, there was a consensus for 75 years, longer in the case of some things. And uh, Trump seems to be trying to break away from that. But does this create an opportunity to kind of rethink things, rethink ideas, whether it's American exceptionalism or idea of the international um, uh, order or multilateral institutions or America's role in the world or how power should be distributed? Could there be a similar kind of refresh in uh, foreign policy and national security thinking in the next couple of years um, as we make a generational change and, and as we're seemingly um, perhaps open to some new ideas? Yeah, I, I think that's actually already happening, David, and it's happening in two tracks simultaneously. One is the policy track, right? People in think tanks worried that Trump is actually carrying the Republican Party in an uncharted direction for the United States in the last 70 years and worried about whether uh, the liberal international order that the United States and its friends constructed out of the ashes of World War II is sustainable. That is, can we re-engage with Americans on the same terms and persuade them in the same ways that what President Trump is doing is damaging to America's safety and prosperity um, and win that argument, in particular among conservatives, or do we need to think about a new bargain? And it's also going on in academia, where the Koch brothers have, have funded an enormous amount of scholarship that frankly was overdue on whether retrenchment, that is an America much less engaged in the rest of the world, serves our interests better. Um, a lot of conservatives are really nervous about this um, because they're sloshing eye-wateringly eye amount, large amounts of money around uh, by academic standards. But two things. The first thing is, I do think it is fundamentally healthy to have the argument. And the second thing is, I think um, that, that uh, those of us who believe that the United States is safest and most prosperous by working with friends to shape the rules of the order rather than sitting out that part of international engagement. I think we can win that argument, and I think we are beginning to win that argument. If you look at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs polling, for example, of American attitudes about the world, you see on trade and on immigration and on alliances, 
big swings in opposition to President Trump's policies. So I think, as usual in American politics, we're a laboratory of ideas, many of them bad, and then we revert to more sensible approaches. Well, that's a, that's an uh, encouraging uh, uh, outlook, David. One of the areas where we're going to need new ideas and new doctrine is the areas where we don't have any. Um, and you've written a lot about cyber, obviously, and uh, there's all sorts of forms of next generation um, warfare, which Rosa has written uh, about. Well, everybody here has has dealt with. Um, but but uh, it, you know, is the fact that there's so many new areas that don't have policies associated with them also a kind of an opportunity in this period of ferment? It's a huge opportunity and it's also a huge risk. And the risk comes from the fact that while we have sucked all the air out of the atmosphere, worrying about Donald Trump for understandable reasons, worrying about the future of the country, dealing with all the partisan divides that lead to government shutdowns and the like, we are not making progress in any of these areas where we have to debate out very fundamental questions. In a world of artificial intelligence, are we um, comfortable with the thought that some wars are going to be fought increasingly um, on the basis of machine-made decisions or um, using um, robotic arms that may, uh, robotic uh, weapons, I should, should say, um, that are going to increasingly have to do some of their responses themselves without human intervention. Um, if we don't, I was do that, just trying to figure out how robotic arms were working in that. I'm glad the, you clarified it to weapons. The, David. the 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 answer to that is that they they make roses tea while she's doing all of this. That that, that we that we're willing to have happen. Um, if only, if only. Uh, so. These are all big decision areas, obviously in cyber and cyber policy, preemption, and so forth. These are all big areas. And it's exactly the kind of debates that completely consumed the United States in the 50s and 60s when the subject was nuclear weapons. We're not having that conversation for all kinds of reasons, partly because so far we haven't really had a, a generation of lawmakers who were tech savvy enough to be able to go handle it. We're hoping that that's changing but partly because we've wrapped ourselves in so many other um, issues that when we look back 20 or 30 years from now, we may ask the question, did the Chinese use this period of American distraction to enormous advantage, just as they use the American distraction over the attacks and the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan to their great advantage? And you know, when the history of the Trump administration is written, it may well be the subjects we didn't deal with, from climate change to these kinds of issues, that turn out to be as big as the ones we did. Rosa, what about well the- said, David? Sorry, to wow, stop. that came from Corey. You so, sorry, you Can just you imagine. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm sure Ed is standing, giving a standing ovation quietly right now. Also, I'm um, giving some very polite but firm applause. Yeah, kind of. Cricket applause. Exactly. It's a little tap of the fingers, but it, yeah. it, it, I'm, I fully agree with what David just said. Rosa, <laughs> Rosa, can you extend that to the issues of next generation warfare where we just, I mean, he's mentioned some of them, but I mean, do you want to elaborate on that since it's an area you've worked? Well, I think David covered, David David mentions the, the biggies that people worry about. Um, 
and or are excited about. I just wanted to say something slightly different, which is which is put in my usual plug for robots. Uh, I like robots very much. Um, I don't like people all that much. Uh, so far, I think the track record of robots on almost everything is a little bit better than the track record of humans. Um, so I, I actually, I mean, we could happy to explain why, but but I, I actually think that there is much less to fear than than people think um, about the idea of having more automated decision making. Um, the the non-automated decision making that we humans have been making lately as a as a nation, indeed as a as a globe, has been pretty horrifically bad. So I don't think the robots can really do any worse. Hey David, that- can I suggest an experiment that would begin to test Rose's thought, <laughs> which is that we do a complete deep state radio broadcast with the robots representing your panelists. The robots would be great. They I'm sure the robots would be great, but Rose is one step ahead. Is it not true that you're running your Roomba against Trump as the first robot candidate? Yeah, I think the Roomba is going to run for president in 2020. Actually, the Roomba is not going to make it. Our Roomba died. It it it, it crashed into a corner, ate a lot of dog hair, and and you know slowly declined until it had to be put out of its misery. Um, so you know we we have some evolution to do in in robot land. Um, uh, but but I did just get a new car um, for the first time in what? in over a decade. I, I, I can't believe that I once met your car. I and know you, you met my car, and it was it was getting a little long in the tooth. <laughs> um, and I found the I found the crank you used to start it very charming. <laughs> well, well, uh, so I got a, a Honda Pilot, which I realize isn't considered by most people to be a really sexy and exciting car, but for That's me... That's called compared, a deep state radio limo. <laughs> but compared <laughs> to the old minivan, it's, it's pretty cool, guys. But, but you know, um, one of the things that for me, having spent the last uh, decade, you know, driving a, an older car around, um, I, I have not... This was the first time I've driven a car with all the advanced driver safety features. And at first it was a little like, bit freaky. Like seatbelts? like seatbelts that at first it was a little freaky because there I was driving along the highway. And if my car started to drift out of my lane, the steering wheel just took over and steered for me for a little while to get me back on the straight and narrow, literally speaking. Um, and it was a little unnerving, but after a while I realized the car is a lot smarter than I am. And so I was willing to let the car take over really any aspect of my life at once. In fact, it could vote on my behalf, probably. Um, <laughs> but, but no, I, <laughs> I think this is, uh, you know, as with everything, I mean, more, on a more serious note, you know, as with everything, there, there are all kinds of scary scenarios that we could, we could play out with all of this. Um, um, but uh, both when it comes to ordinary technologies, like, like the computer in your car or medical technologies, but also when it comes to, to weaponry, um, you know, I, I don't think there is as much, as usual, the things to worry about have more to do with humans than machines. Uh, worry about the people and how they choose to use things. I wouldn't worry too much about the robots. Um, well, certainly Donald Trump is bearing that out if you accept the notion that he's actually human. I would um, absolutely be willing to run my new Honda Pilot against him in 2020. Wow. If you, if you remember your um, Isaac Asimov, um, the iRobot, <laughs> At the at the end of it, <laughs> a, a robot, or it's pretty clear, a robot is elected president. But we're not sure whether the robot is human or not because robots are clever; they merge with humans. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> yes, and for those of you who are not reading your I Asimov, Isaac, Isaac Asimov uh, I Robot, uh, you can always watch Westworld, where that's the whole plot of the series, actually. Uh, Man, that I cannot watch that show. It's so tense for me to watch the young lovers get killed over and over and over again. I just can't take it. Yeah, the first couple of times is fun, but you know, by by time five, no, sorry, I'm joking. Huh. I, I withdraw that sick joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, another reason to favor the robots, Ed. <laughs> when did a robot ever make a sick joke? Um, Never. Well, that's how the robots persuade you that they're human. Oh, is that they, I see. They make, in fact, I would. I think this is the time where. David and, and I can announce it, but Ed is actually a project of ours that we built in our garage. Well, yeah, it's true, but it was my algorithm <laughs> that worked up that worked up the incredible the incredible accent that he has because when when it turned out in David's version, it was a Bronx accent. <laughs> yeah, well, all I can say to you, my friend, is how many followers does Alexandria Ocasio Cortez have? I, on Twitter, and how many does um, Ed Luce have? She's just a nose ahead of me, but I mean, a whisker. <laughs> There's a whisker. I think she just about at 12 million. In fact, I think that's a kind of an interesting point, Ed. You know, this woman, 29 year old woman, came out of nowhere, and she now has more followers than anybody in the Democratic Party, more than Barack Obama. I, I think she's second of all the political leaders in the country. Now, it's not to say that, you know, Twitter followers is the, the measure of anything, but but it's there is obviously a deep hunger for something different. Uh, there, there is. Sorry, are you, are you directing this at me? Yes, sir. Mister, yes. Yeah, Your well, algorithm should kick in now with a comment. Yeah, uh, well, I, I'm, I've stored up the laughter for later on um, in my comment, and, and there's going to be a, um, a humanistic piece of sarcasm as well in my answer, which will also fool you. Um, but yes, clearly, clearly she answers a thirst. I mean, what she what she provides is authenticity. I mean, you know, the the way that she campaigned and you know brings. Um, Instagram followers into her life, you know, cooking and in her kitchen and doing all kinds of stuff is caught on. It, it's actually not endeared me much to either Elizabeth Warren drinking beer in her kitchen and saying to her husband, oh, nice of you to come, <laughs> which uh, um, which was not the sort of normal thing you say to your spouse when you see them in your mutual kitchen, um, or indeed Beto O'Rourke, you know, having his teeth cleaned um, um, are there live for anybody who wants to view it. Um, she's clearly set set a trend. I have to say, as somebody pointed out on Twitter, let's hope Beto O'Rourke doesn't have any, a prostate exam anytime soon. Um, uh, she's got uh, an author. I so did not need that visual. <laughs> no, well, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, I, I don't, even as a robot, even I would sort of recoil from, from such visuals. Um, she's, she's just got a way of connecting younger voters and they are the holy grail of, um, not just politics, but of democratic politics in particular. <laughs> Sorry, but I'm just going off on the notion of your voice as a voice of a robot and it so works, you know. <laughs> it really I, does work. I can imitate. You know, give, give me an accent, and I, I'll just switch to that one. 
no, but know, it's, the really it's, hard part was getting it to write those columns. But, you know, it only took us about a day of programming. <laughs> <laughs> this is the promise of artificial intelligence. It, it is. But I mean, admit it, Ed has got this kind of C3PO thing going on. <laughs> I can switch to New Jersey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. What are you, you going to do? Oh, my God. That is Hugh Grant <laughs> and Mickey Blue Eyes. <laughs> that was very that, persuasive. That, that was an earlier model. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I've got a much more supple program for New Jersey. Yeah, can you do can you do Hugh Grant and Mickey Blue Eyes saying "forget about it"? <laughs> <laughs> you you just did it. Yeah, thanks. yeah. Well, I I have an advantage, you know, in this regard, uh, because I'm actually in New Jersey as we're saying this, and I'm from New Jersey. Um, anyway, uh, you know, I do think that you know there is some hope here, Corey, and that is, you know, that our you know long national nightmare is bound to be over sometime soon. And following it, there there could be a kind of a, a rebirth, right? I mean, there could be a revitalization. There could be new ideas. There, there you know, there is a possibility so, that this will be a real sort of shot in the arm for the country or a kick in the ass or something like that. I think that's exactly right. Now, I realize I am easy to mock since I possess the tiara of optimism. But it does seem to me um, a dark, long-shot possibility that, in fact, Donald Trump will end up being good for democracy in America because he is reminding us that it matters who you vote for. All of those people on the Democratic left who said there's no difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, they ought to be apologizing to all of the rest of us right now. Um, and the surge of women running for office, because I do think the gender gap is a really important part. I think women take the offensiveness of President Trump harder than men do, and it has spurred more women into political running for office, and I think that's fabulous for the country. It's also making us think about the importance of not just rules and not just laws, but norms of behavior and our expectations. I fondly hope that the Trump administration ends with a boring, reliable politician from one party or the other replacing him and us as a nation returning to expending our passion on March Madness, on whatever. I mean, think back to that greatest onion headline of all time, which was about a month after September 11th, 2001, which was nation yearns to return to pointless bullshit. That's where I am right now in the political cycle. <laughs> that's where we all are, Corey. Um, and that's where we're going to end this episode of Deep State Radio. We hope everybody comes back next week because there's all sorts of stuff going on and it's bound to be a lively discussion. We also hope you tune in to Washington for Beautiful People uh, with uh, Emily Brandwin, our own CIA spy girl, and uh, our National Security Magazine also this week and some new articles on the website. Uh, all of it visitable at deepstateradionetwork.com. 
where you really, really, really should go and sign up and be a member and help support this enterprise and also get your friends to listen and help us to continue the growth that has now continued over something like 160 episodes um, uh, because this is fun and interesting uh, and the funnest, most interesting, smart people and one robot are uh, Rosa and Corey and David and Ed and I will let you determine who's the robot and who are the people. Uh, <laughs> you've loaded that. You've loaded that one. I don't stand a chance. <laughs> well, I don't know. If people were going to pay for a robot, I think there would be serious demand for a robot that laughs. I like do not Corey. want this sentence to... I, I really do not think we ought to invite deep state nerds into that conversation my friends i but I, th I just think they would all pay for a robot that laughed like you do Corey. They, they, <laughs> see? people play this over and over they're people in their basement just like hitting the Corey laugh over and over those are my voters man people living in their parents basements exactly <laughs> but producing serotonin the easy way anyway <laughs> Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ian, our engineer. Uh, thanks to all of you out there, and we'll join you again next week. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.